Let me pray. Lord, even now, would we earnestly seek you? Open our eyes, open our hearts. Would you even confront us, not to shame us, Lord, but uh, to lead us uh, in the better way? Oh, Lord, help me to make much of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're almost to the end of 1 Timothy. Yeah. All right. Um, and wait for this. After 1 Timothy is 2 Timothy. So uh, we're going to finish up uh, 1 Timothy 6 in the next couple weeks and then uh, dive into 2 Timothy after that. 2 Timothy is a little shorter, uh, but it should be. It should be a fun time. Imagine you're flourishing. When you think about your life, your desires, your pursuits, what does it mean for you to flourish? Well, to be honest, I am very often, not pridefully so, a master of destruction. One whose imagination is wasted on a future that holds even promises, failure, and disappointment. I tend toward counterfeit versions of flourishing that cannot offer the kind of rest and fulfillment for which I long. And again, my disordered longings often submit to a cynicism that reduces God's love to a kind of indifference, a generalized affection that merely serves as an accessory to my chaotic pursuits of wealth, status, security, rest. Well, recently, my wife, Betsy, uh, who stood up at the right time, uh, she challenged me with with, uh, a great question. She said this, God has given you a beautiful imagination and great lats, and you apply so much of that energy to your destruction. What if you applied that imaginative energy to your flourishing. And I, I was stunned because she was right. What if you applied your imagination to the categories to which you don't naturally defer? What if this easy yoke and this light burden that Jesus offers is better than this unbearable weight of keeping up with the Joneses or if you prefer the Kardashians? Jesus offers a life of beauty instead of chaos. He offers a life of servanthood instead of status, of contentment instead of consumption, of worship instead of wealth. He gives us a renewed definition of what it means to gain. In 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and it does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, In the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let me close this in prayer. I'm just kidding. Um, it's, it's pretty direct. But I want to look at two things from this passage. The chaos of craving and the gain of contentment. Sorry, there's not enough alliteration in there, but you'll, you'll deal with it. Is he a Presbyterian? Um, first, the chaos of craving. Paul's first warning here concerns false teachers. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. And then we see that this teaching leads to a list of things that is antithetical to the idea of flourishing. In fact, the word Paul uses here for craving refers to a sickness, a disease, a plague. And he's using it figuratively to describe an inward state, a pandemic of the heart, if you will. You won't. In 2 Timothy 2.17, he uses the same word. And he describes such teaching as spreading like gangrene. So it's a kind of posture that instigates a moral chaos that destroys the cohesion of God's household. So we're not talking about uh, an argument that, or a simple argument, a harmless argument that lies at the fringe of a community, but one that threatens the holy order of God's presence and provision. And all of this is for selfish gain. And while we don't know exactly what is being referred to here, there is some degree of financial gain assumed here with these false teachers. It's an appearance of godliness that cultivates deviation, it cultivates division and greed. It invites corruption and disorder, leading people to death. And when Paul is describing their thoroughly corrupted minds, he's saying that these teachers have been robbed of the truth. I read one commentator who said... <clears throat> that it conveys the notion of a person being deprived of a thing to which he has a right. The truth was once his, and he has disinherited himself. Imagine someone breaks into your house. Instead of hiding or calling the police, you come down and you're like, hey, good choice, but I come to this room. There's some great stuff in here. And I, hey, I'll even help you carry it out. That would be crazy. You would be exposing your most prized possessions to one whose only concern is theft. The shepherd cannot give his post to a wolf and expect the wolf to care well for the sheep. You know, we live in an age where, where everyone seems to be a prophet. If you have a Twitter account, you're a prophet. It's, it's an opportunity for you to stake claim to what is true. It's an opportunity for you to unite people around shared loves or even shared hates. 
But we find ourselves so often in these echo chambers where we fail to listen to the other side, to those who challenge us. And when we go to these places, what are we saying? What are we cultivating? Is it humility? Is it mercy? Is it repentance or is it envy? Dissension? Slander? Evil suspicions? Uh, there is, an, there is a, a, a Twitter account that I follow. It's fascinating to me. I'm, I'm not going to name it. But uh, basically this, this person finds false teachings all over the internet, videos and such, and he posts them. And it's basically his, his whole point is to expose these false teachings in the church. You know, a, a pretty, pretty good intention. I get it. But here's my problem with it. If you scroll down under these posts, it's Christian after Christian being awful to the speaker or, you know, the source material. And these are brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and they are just hurling slander, and, and it just makes me really sad. Because to me, that doesn't seem any better. It's stirring up a, a, a kind of disunity among Christians. And they hide behind this, this idea of, like, I'm just exposing uh, false teaching. So I think in a lot of ways, it, it's an incomplete pursuit of truth. When we create a false godliness, we create chaos in our own hearts, but also in our, in our own communities, in our church, in our families. So let's look at the gain of contentment. Uh, there's a brilliant author named Neil Gaiman who wrote uh, a novel years ago called American Gods. There's a TV show as well. And the basic premise of this story is that the old gods, figures from Greek and Roman and Norse mythology, were growing obsolete. New gods, personifications of newly worshipped entities like technology, media, capitalism, they were poised to take their place. And uh, a woman named Tara Isabella Burton, she recently wrote a fascinating book called Strange Rites, where she really just explores the, the religious and spiritual landscape of our country. It's a fascinating read. But she says this, the rising, the rising Generation Z, those born after 1997, might be the least religious yet. 34% of them say they're religiously unaffiliated. 13%, twice the rate of the general population, identifies as atheists. But then she says this, and yet, new gods are everywhere. Christopher Wright explains that it, there's a paradox here when we talk about these lowercase g gods, these, these idols. When we compare them to Yahweh, our creator, God of the universe, these gods are nothing. But in relation to us, worshipers, they're something. In other words, we, we can't simply say these gods really don't have power, because they do. And I think Paul's really clear here that if we're not careful, They'll pull us in. And because Israel worshipped Yahweh alone, uh, their relationship to these cultural gods was uh, complicated, to put, it, to put it nicely. If you read 
through the Old Testament, uh, it, it seems a vicious cycle of them submitting to idolatry, with God graciously drawing them back. Isabella Burton later writes, we don't live in a godless world. Rather, we live in a profoundly anti-institutional one where the proliferation of internet creative culture and consumer capitalism have rendered us all simultaneously parishioner, high priest, and deity. America, America is not secular, but spiritually self-focused. And perhaps nothing exposes our selfishness, our control, than money. A lot of amens there. Um, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Paul has just warned against deceitful gain. And which leads him now to talk about contentment, which in many ways is, is the part of the passage that's bringing it all together, holding it all together. Culturally, philosophically, you had the Stoics, and they used this idea of contentment as something that concerned a self-sufficiency or a self-determination. But Paul is bringing it in, and he's beginning to reshape this word and this idea in light of the person and work of Jesus. And he uses this word only two other times in his writings. In 2 Corinthians 9.8, he says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency, or contentment, some translate, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Philippians 11.13, Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then the familiar one. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Hashtag Tim Tebow. Um, you know, we tend to use that verse for everything. You know, uh, I'm going hiking today. I can do all things through God who strengthens me. That's great. Um, to a degree, that's true. But we often forget that contextually Paul is talking about contentment. And I think if, if we were to use Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we may be slower to do that when, in talk of contentment. So Paul is challenging our, our ideas of flourishing. He's challenging our carefully curated selves in favor of a dependency that strips us of entitlement and of self-focus. And, and it's pretty clear. All that's promised here is food and clothing. It doesn't say food and clothing and shelter. It's all that's promised, food and clothing. If we needed all those other things, why would they not be included in this list? Paul goes on, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
So back in verse 4, Paul used this word for crave. Here he talks about craving again. But it's a little bit different. Here he's, he's referring to that which we aspire to. Or that uh, for which we strive. And if you consider what greed is, it is a type of striving. But again, it's one that only brings disorder. It kills your imagination because it reduces flourishing to accumulation. Consider our values. At, at Hope Presbyterian Church, we have four values. Worship, relationship, incarnation, and beauty. Those are our four values. What would, ha what would happen if we were to, uh, uh, to challenge those values with greed? Worship. When we come to worship, to corporately worship together, we are reordering our desires. We're coming in and again, kind of restoring ourselves to the story of the gospel. Remembering that the grace of Jesus is sufficient. But if we're unwilling to submit our greed to this place, I think we could maybe even grow to despise his sufficiency. What about relationship? Well, your greed is not isolated. It affects those around you. It stirs up pride and arrogance and distrust. I mean, I can't imagine anyone be like, man, I love hanging out with Greedy Greg. Um, that's not his first name. That's just... Uh, it, it's just, it's exhausting. And again, it creates chaos and disorder in relationships. What about incarnation? We have this reality of a Savior who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This precedent that calls us to a, to a kind of downward mobility, an obedience that brings a righteous order which greed can never accomplish. If we're going to go, if we're going to go to the darkest places, if we're going to enter into people's lives that are broken, if we're greedy, we're going to have little concern for their plight. We're going to have little concern for the poor, the downcast, and those who feel trapped under the unbearable weight of injustice. Because all we're thinking about is ourselves. That's their problem. I'm going to gain. What about beauty? As God's image bearers, we have a glorious responsibility of influencing our community through our imagination and work. That's from the value on the website, uh, word for word. And when I talk about imagination, it's easy for you to think art. But God has given you all an imagination. He has called you to a certain place, a certain job, a certain street, a certain family, to which you can apply your imagination. And this doesn't necessarily mean, well, does this mean I need to start a Bible study at my work? Maybe. But it doesn't have to be, like, directly Christian. It's just you having... A, a kingdom of God lens through which you view everything you do. A lot of the time it's doing your job well. It's thinking of ways uh, to care for the people around you. That's beautiful. Greed is not beautiful. As the writer Harrison Scott Key says, whatever you dream, just be careful. 
our vision as a church. If you go to the website, it'll say this. For all souls in and around downtown Lexington to flourish in a community that is rooted in Jesus Christ, compelled by his gospel and strives for a more beautiful and just city. Our passage began this way. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, when Paul's talking about agreeing, it's this idea of approaching with the intention of attaching yourself to it. To attach ourselves to false teaching, to greed, brings all kinds of, of evil. That's very clear. But I, there's a better way, and there's a better aim. And, and this may sound like a Jesus juke. It's not. Attaching ourselves to Jesus. This Jesus who grieved over the rich young ruler, who just the one thing he wouldn't do was sell all that he had. When Jesus was saying, you have the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, the rich young ruler wouldn't take it. This is a Jesus who said how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. This Jesus who said, you can't serve God in money. This Jesus who frees you from the captivity of empty deceit. This Jesus who has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. This Jesus whose poverty, whose humility included a cross on which he died to deliver you from sin. This Jesus who rose to life that you would be raised anew to a life of glory-saturated contentment. So ultimately our gain is Christ himself. It would be really easy to just be like, okay, I just need to be more content. I need to be less greedy. Sure. But the greatest gain here is Christ himself. His grace is sufficient. It's an invitation to experience the intimacy of a God who fathers you, who will never leave or forsake you. And I think this, as the church, as a community, this is a compelling vision something we can bring into the world who's believing all kinds of things. Our counterfeit versions of faith, our counterfeit versions of flourishing really don't stand a chance. So how do we apply these things? Real quickly. I said it before, use your imagination. Just start to dream a little bit. Things you want to do in your job. Maybe it's not even your job. Pray for discernment and a humble pursuit of truth. Pray for a heart of generosity. And then last, last is accountability. Ask for help. You know, we have deacons here, and part of their role is, is coming alongside of you and helping you in the ways you think about money. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing, frankly. Uh, because again, as we talk about these things, uh, the, the only other way that we're going to flourish together is if we're together. And I understand that, that money is something that's really hard to submit to another person. Uh, but I would really urge you to trust us. I recently read a poet who said, Contentment is a feast. Contentment is a feast. A table to which God himself invites us to know and experience the abundance of one 
who can do far more than we could ever ask. So, in light of that, imagine this kind of flourishing. Let me pray for us. God, help us to be present with you, to be content. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, to hold things loosely and even to find uh, a, re- a rest that may seem strange, but one uh, that is palpable when we are content. Godliness with contentment is a great gain. In Jesus' name, amen.